Hello, all you truculent bad men. You're a bad man. We know how to float and also know how to sting. Thanks for downloading episode number 89 of Scoring at the Movies. We scamper back to the past to take a look at sports films and we spoil them. I'm the guy who's so ugly that sweat runs backwards to stay away from his face. Ryan Ellis. That's a great burn. That's a great burn. And here's my bigger, stronger dance partner who knows how to rumble, young man rumble, Chris DiGregorio. I am feeling like a bad man today. The way over here, I murdered a rock. I injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so bad, I make podcasters sick. <laughs> nice. You so, did say we had to do some rhyming two weeks ago, and you're right, you've already done it. Well, I gotta badly imitate some of Muhammad's best lines, mm-hmm. and I think that was from one of his precursor press conferences to the Rumble in the Jungle, wasn't it? When oh, was that in the movie? It's not in the movie. Okay. I was shocked it was in the movie. You know what was in the movie that's in the trailer, and I double-checked this, I watched the trailer yesterday. Maybe a few things aren't, but one for sure is when he's standing with this big crowd outside and he says to a kid, I'm going to hit your hand three times before you blink or something like that. Or before you count to three. That's what it is. The kid counts to three fairly quickly. So it's one, two, three. Did I hurt you? <laughs> he doesn't move. That's how fast he supposedly is. But that was great. And that's Will Smith obviously playing Muhammad Ali doing something Muhammad would have done. But it's not in the movie. Or if it was, I missed it. I don't think it's in the movie. For a biopic about maybe one of the most charismatic intelligent, well-spoken, all the labels you want to put on Muhammad Ali. Especially for an athlete, those things. Yeah, you could say that of public figures in the 20th century, but especially for an athlete. So it's a biopic about him. It's played by one of the most charismatic actors in Hollywood, particularly in 2000, this was 2004? 2001. 2001, well, still, peak Will Smith. They found a way to flatten out those characters and make them almost dull through the whole movie. I kind of get what Michael Mann's going for, but how do you take characters like this with an actor like this and make them almost blasé in nature? I had no recollection of this going in because I hadn't seen it since it came out on DVD in 2001. So, okay. Been a while. I saw it on the big screen in 2001. That was Christmas time. So it was released on Christmas Day, in fact, by Columbia Pictures on Christmas Day. I saw it probably in the next couple of weeks. But that time of year is always big for movie releases, prestigious movie releases. And that year especially, I remember being very big. And it was probably the least impressive of all of them. Not that it's a bad film. Really well cast, mostly. Huge mm-hmm. cast, a who's who of black actors even then, let alone in the years that followed. But I had the same thought you did, which is, how is this movie not more charismatic and entertaining and grander and bigger, considering its subject matter? And even other people in it, like Howard yeah. Cosell, he's a big name too. Bundini Brown, played by Jamie Foxx. Yeah, a lot of characters in the movie that you would think, leaving aside Ali, who's like the biggest character you can possibly have pretty much in a biopic, just in terms of personality. And you're right, those other guys... I don't know a lot about Bandini as a guy. Bundini. Is it Bundini? It's a nickname. He's Drew Brown, but Bundini oh, is a okay. nickname, according to the IMDb's credit list here. But certainly guys like Cosell, and you have Don King at various Of course, Don King, right. But throughout all of it, they feel muted. The whole movie just feels muted from the color palette right down to the script, because you're right, there's a lot of big-name actors. Jamie Foxx, in a role that gives him so little to do, given the amount of screen time he also has, because he's in the movie a lot, but very often is just lingering in the background, throwing in the odd little pithy line here and there. How does it not feel 
bigger when its runtime is what two hours and over two and a half two hours. Two and a half hours, long. yeah. It's almost a movie of contradictions, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about why that is specifically. But before we do that, I need to wet my whistle. Me so. too. I've been waiting for that moment to jump in and say, open up your beer. What are you drinking over there? Steam whistle, I think? Yeah, this is a harvest lager. I figure we're well into October now. It's time to get into a more of a seasonal beer. Fair enough. This goes up at the end of October. This episode does. I just opened up a can of pop. Just ordinary pop for now. But getting back to that whole point, the tagline of this movie, at least it's on the poster, forget what you think you know. Did you forget what you thought you knew about this movie? Or this char- this man, this character. Like I said, I saw this movie 20 years ago, and I had entirely forgotten everything I knew about the movie. It's accurate. This is a forgettable movie about, <laughs> a, about an unforgettable man, but it taught me nothing about Muhammad Ali that I didn't already know. And granted, I know a lot more about the man in 2021 than I did in 2001. He's somebody you'll be compelled to read about. A, I feel like Muhammad Ali is a tough guy to do a two to two and a half hour long biopic about and do it justice if you're trying to capture the entirety of the man because so much happens in his life, especially in the 10-year period that this movie covers. So it feels like you either have to give him a full miniseries. We've been saying this a lot this year. Yeah. This is content that really deserves a full miniseries where you can do justice to each element of the life that is touched on in this movie. Or, you know what, focus on his boxing career and give us that to the nth degree. Or focus on his relationship with Islam or give us the social justice element of his life and his connection to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and give us that to the nth degree. But we don't get any of it to any great degree in this movie. We get tangential brushes with Malcolm X and with the social justice movement and with his connection to Islam and his love life. It's just like this movie wants to give us everything, but it doesn't really give us any of it. But that leads me into the nutshell then. So Ali, in a nutshell, if ever a movie should have been nine hours long, it's a Muhammad Ali biopic. Yeah. Rather than that happened, move on. That happened, move on. That happened, move on. Exactly. You just said it better than me, but you stole my nutshell and I had to say it anyway. <laughs> no, no, you're right. The nutshell, I 100% agree with that. It both felt very long because I never really felt like it drew me in too much. And I think that's because it did exactly what you just described. This thing happened. Now let's move on. Oh, this thing happened. Now let's move on. The first instance of that, what I found super jarring, and this is where I knew this was going to be a long watch for me, is when Malcolm X got killed. Yes. I think we're meant to feel like that was a really crushing blow for a young Cassius Clay at that Absolutely, point. Absolutely, yeah. But the problem I had with it is it was never really explained to us how close Malcolm X was to Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and vice versa. We get shots of them interacting, and Malcolm X shows up and disappears and shows up and disappears. But we don't really know how they met. We don't really know what their relationship is on an ongoing basis, except that they're just kind of friends and they know each other. But you have acquaintances in life that you care about somewhat and be upset if they died. But he's devastated and you don't really know why. And it doesn't linger on why. It's like, oh, I'm devastated. And then 30 seconds later, he's preparing for his next fight or he's dating. She's boning another woman. I think it leads right into a sex scene. The next scene is a sex scene. Was it with Sanji or was it with his second wife? I think it must be Sanji at that point, It's right? Sanji. Well, actually, it's after... Maybe I've got the wrong. After the breakup they had in Africa where it's... You shouldn't have quarreled with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, is what he says to Malcolm in Africa. And I think it's the next scene where he's with Sanji. Yeah. In any case, though... It's jarring. That is a very jarring thing to do. When he's got this very serious thing, he's a big follower of Islam at that point, and he was for many years. I don't know if it was the whole rest of his life, but anyway, for a while he was. 
And Sanji wasn't, which is why they didn't stay together. One of the reasons why. Plus, she was a playboy playmate or something, or a stripper, or porn star, something like that. It's, again, not terribly clear. We're just throwing this scene where he gets very mad at her about putting herself out in public in some fashion. But that's what he was with. That's what he first fell in love with and right? dated, and then I guess married, too. So that's what she was. You knew that. Yeah. And that's also, of course, Jada Pinkett. Smith, his wife, and they were already married, by the way, so either he got the role or Michael Mann said, yeah, we'll use your wife. She's fine, but again, that's a character that has very little to do. Muhammad Ali meets her, they have like one schmoozing, sexy date scene, all of a sudden they're married, then they get in a fight, she's gone again. It's a very in-and-out moment, and like you said, half of that screen time, because I think Sanji's in this movie for like maybe 20 minutes. Probably at the most. She is this socialite, good-time young woman. Muhammad Ali meets her, decides he wants to marry her. I can't remember the name of this organization he's involved with, this Islamic organization, but he tells them, I'm going to marry her, make it happen. And they're like, oh, this is not the girl you marry, Cassius. And he says, she's going to be, I'm going to marry her. And then, like you said, 10 minutes later, we get a scene where he's all pissed off because she is the person she was when he met her. In a movie that focuses more minutely on the personal life of this character and maybe just leaves aside some of those other elements we already talked about, Maybe you can get enough screen time that you get the evolution of their personal life together behind Mm -hmm. the scenes. And maybe there's conversations that happen and that explains the anger. As it is, it was just a whirlwind character that's in and out and then she's gone and you're just like, okay, I guess that happened. Whatever. You could argue, and Michael Mann maybe would have argued at the time or even now, that he put that across by saying this bigger than life personality who's now become the heavyweight champion of the world expected her to change we are supposed to just put that together as an audience i agree with you i think that's weak but maybe that's what he's saying is going on this movie by the way is very scorable because of course jada pinkett smith has always been a good looking lady but he gets even better as they go along when it comes to looks nona gay who wasn't in very many movies she's in the matrix sequels a couple years after this and hasn't really made that many films right she is a stunner and then michael michelle who had been on er before this or around this time is the last woman he's with. He was with more than that in his whole life, but we only see three in the film, because like you said, 10-year span. And she's even hotter than Nona Gay is. So I'm not sure what Muhammad Ali's actual wives and girlfriends looked like, but in this movie, all of them are 10s, and they might even be 12s. Are you ever going to have a Hollywood biopic where any love interest is anything less than a 10 or a 12? Probably not. Probably not. The least attractive one is his actual wife, and that's Jerry Pinkett. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with her. It's just that Nona Gay and Michael Michelle even more so. There were a few rare instances where... Will Smith is allowed, I say that in air quotes, I don't know what the direction was, but it felt like he was finally allowed to sort of let the charisma through and play. And be Will Smith. Be Will Smith being public persona Muhammad Ali in his early press conferences and weigh-ins when he's really... Like turning he's, it on. He's turning it on. And he gave one of those, he's so ugly, the sweat beads up like Love backwards. That That's a great line. And what I like about that, I have to say, like credit to Michael Mann in this case, he does a great job of juxtaposing Cassius Clay in that moment against your typical athlete boxer or just athlete generally, where Muhammad Ali is just laying down these really pithy insults, and the only rebuttal the other fighter has is, fuck you, or go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's all most people, I just say this generally, most people, that's all you're going to be able to muster in the moment. But Muhammad Ali was so witty, so pithy, and so intelligent that he was able to pull these spoken word insults out of the air. I was reading earlier today that he's a forerunner to rap. I've or hip hop, I guess, same thing. Yeah, he sort of channeled the lyricism that would later become hip hop. And I believe it when you read some of his spoken word stuff. He could have been an actual rapper. Of, give him 30 years, he would have been Shaquille O'Neal before Shaquille O'Neal, right? Because <laughs> it's not a perfect comparison, but I was thinking about this when watching the movie. Are there any modern athlete comparables? And there's not. But one of the closest I could think of in terms of just personality coming across in the public sphere and being exceptional at your sport, was maybe Shaq. 
he wasn't as pithy or witty or the wordsmith necessarily that Muhammad Ali was, not the poet, but he was a witty guy and he was funny. And Actually, I have another example. Yeah, what's that? The Rock. Yeah, the Rock. Don't forget The, the Rock was an actual one, athlete. He was a football player first, then he became a professional wrestler, and now, of course, he's better known as an actor. A lot of people, young people, probably wouldn't even know or they wouldn't really care that he was a wrestler and that's what made him a star. That's a good one. So okay. he's probably the closest comparison you can have. But one thing that I think it's key is when you see Ali, well, at that time, I think he's still Clay, and his entourage walking through the bowels of the building, the determined walk, I don't think Ali was a phony or a faker. I'm not saying that. But I think he did what you hear Nixon, so Anthony Hopkins playing Nixon, about five, six years before this, another long biopic, where he's behind the scenes, looking like he always does, and then as he goes up towards cameras, boom, puts a smile on his face. So to some degree, he's faking it. And even says in the movie, Hopkins does, I miss the acting of it. When Ali is by himself or just with his close friends, he's not at all the person we think of with this public persona. He's not that guy in any way almost. So to some degree, he's like The Rock, for example, who seems like a sweetheart of a nice guy, contrast the character he played as a wrestler for so long. Obviously, The Rock's an actor to some degree as a wrestler, so maybe Muhammad Ali was too, yeah. without being phony. I By no means accuse him of that. And I don't think it's phoniness. I think that's, to a certain extent, human nature. Some people in a public sphere, like once you're amongst other people, you just, by nature, turn it on. And Our friend James will be seeing about an hour is a great example of this. I was just thinking... We wouldn't know, but I bet when he's by himself or with his wife at home, maybe not a whole different guy, but a different guy. Yeah, very quiet when you're in a private sphere versus a public sphere. So. Robin Williams apparently was like that, too. Exactly. That's a good comparison. And if you want to do that in a biopic and you want to say, okay, well, this movie, I'm not going to be portraying the public persona of Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, that everybody already knows. Instead, I'm going to focus on the man. Then I think a few things have to be true. One, I think you step back from his boxing career. because Ironically. There's a lot of boxing in this movie. There is. But I think you have to step back from it because that's the public Ali we all know. And instead, focus on those private relationships with his series of wives, with his religious beliefs and with, with Malcolm his, with Malcolm and his social activism in particular there's by the way a documentary on Netflix about the two of them that does establish how close they were that's what I wanted out of this it movie, just came though. out it's very recent yeah so I think you can do that but it's a different movie and I think if it is that movie and it's not public persona Ali I also don't think you cast Will Smith as much as I think Will Smith did a good job in the role it felt like he was kind of wasted at the same time because he just wasn't allowed to be the charismatic guy that we probably all just want Will Smith to be. He was nominated for an Oscar, as was John Voight as the Best Supporting Actor. And Will Smith, of course, for Best Actor. That was the year that finally Denzel Washington won his Best Actor Oscar. He'd already had a supporting award, but he won for Lead that Actor. for Training Day, right? For Training Day. And that's yeah. the first time, or certainly one of the rare times, that two black people, men or women, have been nominated in the same category, especially Best Actor. And then Voight as Howard Cosell. Again, with a lot of makeup like he had on in Glory Road, although this is better makeup at least. I was, was going to say, it's so much better than Glory Road's was. Mm. <laughs> Playing another famous person in that movie, he plays the real-life coach Adolph Rupp. It was also nominated, the movie was, for the top 100 cheers list, so most inspiring. And this is fitting, I guess. Really? Yeah. Well, I guess the idea that you soldier through. Bev's questioned me many times, and I brought that up too. Not me, but the list many times, what it's considered inspiring. Schindler's List is in the top 10 on that list. As in, it made the list, and it's in the top 10. And yet people get murdered. But the idea is, be like Schindler, I guess. In this case, be like Ali. Stand by your beliefs, and fight hard, and fight literally. I can appreciate that, but it's not really cheerable. And this is Well, the key thing in that show, when they did that many years ago, was the top 100 most inspiring movies of all time. Oh, American inspiring. Movies. Okay. But then Cheers is the short form of that. It's like the top 100 laughs. I used to just call that the funnies, for example. Okay. Or the top 100 love stories. And you can, Anyway, you get the point. Yeah. And this was nominated in the top 100 genres in the sports category. 
Rotten Tomatoes critics barely gave it a pass, meaning the audiences and the critics themselves, but they did. 68% of critics and 65% of audiences. And there were 156 critics that did review this movie, so that's That's a a pretty good example. Yeah, back in those days in 2001. It was 41st that year at the box office. We've covered The Fast and the Furious and Hardball, which were 14th and 62nd, respectively. So it's pretty much right between those two movies. My favorite of those three movies, by the way, and the one I want to see the most and have seen the most, it's Hardball. Of those three, Ali is probably number three on that list for me. I enjoyed Fast and Furious more than I enjoyed watching Ali, I have to admit. I watched this in stages, well, two different sections one day, because I had to see some of it before I had dinner and then the rest of it later on. And that probably didn't help the pace situation, but it's not like I was breaking up a fast-moving movie and then probably ruined my experience, because it is a fairly slow-moving movie, even though it's... That happened, move on. That happened, move on. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the weird cognitive dissonance of watching this movie is it at once feels like there's a lot of stuff happening very quickly and not giving its due. The movie's not giving due to those events. It also moves very, very slowly. And this was one of those instances of a movie where I watched maybe 20 minutes of it and I had to stop and then I picked up the rest of it. And over that last two hours, 10 minutes or so, periodically i'll just check the play time remaining i'm like okay what have i got left half an hour an hour and a half what the <laughs> and all right i'll check again how much time do i have left it's got to be like 40 minutes no, it's an hour and 10 minutes it's just like time stood still at various points in this movie things like the jogging scene in zaire prior to the rumble in the jungle that literally was about 10 minutes long why what's going on here i have an answer what's that well i think what michael mann's going for there is because Ali is very serious when he sees just how inspired they are by him with that Ali Boumaye. And of course, Boumaye means kill him, I guess, in yeah. whatever the language is in Zaire and Kinshasa. One of the characters does correct Don King when Don King says Swahili. Later on, we hear them speaking French, so I think it's some derivative of French okay. being a former there French colony. But I think the idea that man's going for is he sees, meaning Ali sees, just how important a strong black man is to these people in this part of the world. They'd be inspired anywhere, fellow black people, fellow white people should be for that matter. They're not inspired by Foreman, though. That's true. I don't know why they wouldn't be inspired by Foreman, except that we hear that Foreman doesn't want to be there, so maybe that's it. Well, that guy doesn't really appear on screen at all. Except except in the ring. Well, that's right. As an actor, per se, he's barely in the movie. Charles Shufford, who's an actual boxer and apparently a good one, does play Foreman. He's fine as a boxer. The guy who plays Joe Frazier, I believe, is also a boxer, and he's also fine doing that stuff. It's not like he's a bad actor, but that's one of the things. You want to have the boxing scenes look legitimate, but then if you give them any dialogue, who says that they can pull it off or not? There's apparently the famous scene from the Rumble in the Jungle time frame where a reporter says to Foreman, so if you lose, I beg your pardon? So if you lose, I beg your pardon? And the reporter doesn't know why he's interrupting. The idea being, I can't lose. Yeah, you can't gonna say lose. I'm going to lose. So I always love that. I wish they put that in this movie. That would have been good. And I take your point about the intention of the filmmaker, but that's something you can do and make it last I don't know, a minute, two minutes. But I watched the timestamps on that. It's literally 10 minutes of him jogging around Zaire. I'm like, okay, we get it. The people are behind you. We get it. And the movie starts with him jogging too. Ali is, well, he's Clay then. Jogging while you have that, oh yeah, oh yeah, singer. Maybe that's supposed to be Sam Cooke. Of course, Regina King, just last year, I think it was, did One Night in Miami, where Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, and Jim Brown are in a hotel room talking all night long. I don't know if it's supposed to be Sam Cooke, but I got the feeling it could have been. Could have been. I didn't look that up. So anyway... Clay is jogging while black. He is not really pulled over. And the cops don't really truly harass him. But again, they touch on this a decent amount in the movie. But the race issue. That's the other thing I wish they had either given us more of or none of. I know that the real life Cassius Clay 
had troubles growing up. Part of the reason he got into boxing was, I think people stole his bicycle or something, or he got mugged and his bicycle was taken from him and he wanted to defend himself. And we didn't get any of that. We got only the barest hint of why he became so impassioned about the social justice, like the scene you described. And we got that thing where he's looking at the newspaper clipping of the black man that was lynched for looking at the white woman down in the southern U.S. Emmett Till. But it felt like a disservice to that story arc. Give me more or just don't do it. And, and I think you can't skip out on his race issues in the 60s because he and Malcolm X both were hassled by the FBI and the pressure was ratcheted up. And Cosell literally tells him he's an ally saying, you got to be careful because of the color of his skin. If yeah. Muhammad Ali or if Cassius Clay didn't change his name, had looked like you and me or Malcolm X, Malcolm Little looked like you and me. They wouldn't face the same pressures, even if they were big, loudmouth people. And they both oh. were outspoken people, and you could call them loudmouths. And I don't mean that as an insult. I think that's great. Yeah, Muhammad yeah. Ali is truly one of the greatest figures of the 20th century, and he's probably the most famous athlete and maybe arguably the greatest athlete. Well, I think he's definitely, in the argument, the greatest athlete. He's probably the greatest heavyweight of the 20th century. And I don't disagree with you. I think if you're going to try to do this kind of movie, you probably have to do it. But it didn't feel mm-hmm. like this movie did it justice. If you're going to not do it properly... Don't even tackle it. Just give me the in-the-ring Ali and just leave his private life out of it as much as you possibly can. We don't even get a good sense of who Cassius Clay was in the ring going up against... Some other very famous names like Frazier and Liston and then Foreman. Oh, Liston, the first fight is what I was thinking about. Because, of course, Muhammad Ali at that point was not just some schmo, right? He was an Olympic gold medalist yeah, But first. a kid. He was still very young. The second 22. youngest... Second youngest heavyweight champion of all time at that point. I don't know yeah, if that's been passed since. But he was a known quantity and a talented fighter. And the way this movie portrays it is almost like a Rocky story. Out of nowhere, challenges listed. Oh my God, he won. It was an upset, I'm sure. But nonetheless, he was a very good fighter. It wasn't Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson type yeah, upset. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's a more real life example. That's a good one too. This may be a weird and inaccurate comparison, but I kept thinking about Rocky Three. Oh, I thought about that too because of the rope-a-dope thing, the which rope. Rocky doesn't share with Apollo. He's going to do, what the hell are you doing? I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Maybe you should share that with your manager months ago or even during this match so he doesn't worry about you or maybe throw in the towel when he thinks you're getting hammered on, even though the whole point is let him punch himself out. Well, of course, Muhammad Ali, if he didn't invent it, he made the rope-a-dope famous. I assume the rope-a-dope refers to rope in a dope, a dummy. I think so. Yeah, you're just getting him to wear himself out. I think that's the origin of it. And it that. worked because Foreman should have annihilated him. When Foreman sure. did hit him, they show the one point there where Ali is... Yeah. Foreman was a monster in his youth. There's points in this movie, especially prior to the Foreman fight, where we get Ali getting harangued by his wife at that point for wanting to fight Foreman. I'm thinking, you married this guy who's a professional boxer who's professed throughout, at least as the movie would have you believe it, that he wants this fight. He wants to regain his title. Which he never lost. They stripped him. Yeah, they stripped him because he couldn't fight. And that is being held by Foreman. So, of course, he's going to challenge Foreman. So why in Zaire at this point are you now mad at him? Wait a minute. You like to punch people for a living? Yeah. Well, I'm leaving. Why would you let them make you their sacrificial lamb for Foreman? This is what he said he's wanted for the last four years. Why is this a surprise? When I'm thinking about Rocky Three, that's a movie where he loses his belt in a different way, but he's got to pick himself up, find a way to get back into fighting shape. He's got a similar conflict with Adrian in that movie, except I think they actually portray it a little bit better in terms of how they fight and eventually reconcile in a fairly short amount of time. And then he wins the title. Granted, this is a biopic versus an entirely fictional story, obviously, in Rocky. But 
Clubber Lang at least gives you a formidable opponent that you're sort of rooting against, and then so you're rooting for Rocky. In this one, you've got Ali, but at no point are you really given an antagonist to root against, right? Because he beats Liston, right? And then he beats... Or he loses to Fraser, but by decision, yeah. We never see the rematch really against because Fraser. Foreman beat Fraser, and then Ali challenged. Yeah, but which is interesting because he lost to the previous champion. So why is he next up? I guess because of the market beat, value. But he beat Fraser. He fought Fraser a second time and won. Oh. We just don't see it in the movie. There you go. In fact, they fought a third time. Then we get Foreman. But like you said, maybe because the guy playing Foreman in this movie couldn't act his way out of paper bag. I don't know. We don't actually get any screen time with the man George Foreman. In the this Fraser movie. character gets a little more screen time. At one point, they're and in the car good. together. They're driving because the whole idea is we better promote this fight. Yeah. So even though I'm going to have to punch you and you're going to have to punch me in a few months, we're working together right now. And that was a good moment. And he was right. I have nothing to gain from fighting you and everything to lose. And I thought that would have been an interesting thing to draw out a little bit. But then literally five seconds later, he's like, all right, what do I got to do to make this happen? I'm like, oh, okay, well, there goes that. That whole argument went out the window pretty quick. What do you think of that then? Do you think the boxing was good? Like you, I'm not a pro-boxing aficionado. We don't anything. know much about it, that's we true. We don't know much about it. So from what I know, it looked reasonably good. And Will Smith, at this point in his career, he's a young and athletic guy. I'm sure they trained the heck out of him to make it look realistic. He did. He put on a lot of weight, and he worked on his strength as well. And I remember him talking about when he's promoting the movie that he was also horny as hell. <laughs> Something like, my wife is getting it good, whatever it was. He put it better than that, less crass than that. A lot, a lot that. of testosterone yeah, flowing through his system. Exactly, that's why. I thought it looked fine. The thing is... There was so much low-angle, close-up, shaky cam kind of action throughout all the fights, and the fights were long. And I assume they did that because it's easier to make the punches look realistic from those angles when you got a little bit of shaky cam, whereas if you got like a steady cam that's a little bit pulled out, you're going to see the gloves swinging three inches in front of the face. But nonetheless, at a certain point, when you've got these long fight sequences and it's a lot of close-up shaky, low-angle shaky, slow-mo shaky shots, at a certain point I was like... Okay, enough. This is Hold the camera still. Yeah, hold the camera still or something. Again, I thought about Rocky, and Rocky's not going for realistic fighting. Rocky's going for, like, video game fighting versus what this movie's doing. I found the fights not all that interesting, ultimately. Okay, fair enough. Well, Emmanuel Lebeski shot it. Now, of course, when you talk about shaky cam, that's not his choice. Well, it could have been, but Michael Mann's the director. So people will say the most important thing a director can do is know where to put the camera. And in this case, how to use the camera. So it's not really Lebeski's fault, but that is one of the great cinematographers of all time, who was shooting this movie. There were a lot of editors. There were four of them. It doesn't feel like a finished movie. It feels like, as you said, the jogging sequence could have been cut down. Maybe they had to rush it out. That does happen. That's one of the problems with modern movies is that we have a release date, Will Smith film about Muhammad Ali, Michael Mann coming off The Insider. We have to make the Christmas deadline, even though it would have been better to push it to March or something of 2002. Rushing it, maybe. One of the reasons I'm shocked that there was that many editors is because, like you said, it felt unfinished from an editing perspective but didn't they re-release i don't know if it's a director's cut or some sort of special edition on dvd that was longer than this version well director's cuts almost always are longer sometimes they're shorter the coens did a movie that was a shorter version bad santa is also a movie they're involved in by the way not their film also i think the director's cut is shorter than the other version but generally they're longer and sometimes a lot longer if you weren't given the time to fully go through the editing process that maybe you should have been able to prior to release and you realize all right this is a tighter more gripping movie if i cut some of this footage out credit to you it doesn't have to be longer to be better it can be shorter and more gripping i think michael mann is working on an enzo ferrari movie and we just talked about four versus ferrari a few months ago i thought maybe he'd done some other sports film before but no, it's just this one. Of course, he did Heat, The Insider, and Thief back in the 80s, and Miami Vice, Collateral. He's done a lot of movies people have liked. 
I don't really love most of those. Thief, The Insider, and Heat are my three favorite of his films That's by great. a mile. I haven't seen The Insider in many years. Also a real story. A lot of his movies are based on real people. Public Enemies as well. He did about Dillinger. So he does it fine. But then again, he's one of those filmmakers that Michael Mann made this movie. And I look at his resume and think, yeah, I like him, but not as much as you people seem to, meaning everybody else in the world that put him on that kind of pedestal. And this movie is a case in point. It's not a bad film. I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. But we seem to have the same basic problem, which is I know what the point was, but I also don't know what the point was. Well, that's just it. I'm left wondering what Michael Mann thought the takeaway from this movie was going to be. And based on what you said right off the top of with the tagline from the poster, it leaves me wondering even more. What did you think this movie was portraying that would make me forget everything I knew about him? Because, again, I felt like it didn't give me much of anything. But the two things that I would have liked to highlight, one is the FBI stuff. Because we only get the barest sense, really, of how the FBI are tailing Ali as a result of his affiliation with Malcolm X, with Islam, and his position as a black athlete in the inner city and stuff like that. Hoover was all over people like Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King in the 60s because they were such important race leaders. I'm sure he was all over everyone else, too, that any kind of voice. Paul Newman probably had a tail on him, and he's a white guy. But definitely the black leaders did. And maybe he's trying to be subtle. But again, this is a movie that really lacks any kind of strong antagonist element to it. And that could have been the FBI because we get those characters that pop up briefly. Ted Levine. Ted Levine is a The guy from Sounds of the Lambs is in, I think, only that one scene, right? Talking with... Who's even talking with him? I forget now, but I know he's in the movie. Well, that's the only talking part. He pops up later in not the Supreme Court hearing, but the lower level court hearings where Ali is found guilty. That ominous shot, but oh look, the FBI is in the body of the court in the background. But again, it doesn't mean anything because the only other reference we get to the FBI other than shots of Ali looking out in the street and I guess implying that maybe he thinks people are tailing him is when, like you said, Cosell says to him, they're scared of you because of what you represent, blah, blah, blah. Watch your back, yeah. And then that leads me to the second thing about this movie. We talked about Voight being in some serious makeup for the second time in movies that we've watched, and I think we both agree it's better this time for sure. Yes. But of all of the elements of this movie, that was one of the elements that I felt like worked best for me was the portrayal of Cosell and the portrayal specifically of Cosell's relationship with Ali. It felt kind of real. I'm ripping on you, I'm giving you a hard time, and especially on camera, and then behind the scenes, all right, buddy, let's go talk, and then you have those really heartfelt conversations. Yeah, he's not Johnny Carson, where people would say, and this came out many years after Johnny retired, that as jocular and as friendly as he seemed with everybody, during the commercial breaks, he didn't talk to people. Maybe some people got talked to by him, but he ignored them. I don't know if he was necessarily flat-out rude, but he'd just be listening to the music during the commercial break, which is weird. The person's sitting right beside you, (laughs) and you may have talked to them for five or ten minutes. Whatever it was, and now you're ignoring them until, and we're back, and I'm being friends with you again. And that's not the way Cosell is portrayed in this movie with Ali, which I'm guessing is probably based on reality. So, I think that Voight does an okay job playing him, maybe even a pretty good job supporting actor, Oscar nomination. I don't know about that exactly. I don't know if he does the voice quite as well as he could have. Neither does Will Smith. He doesn't really sound like Muhammad Ali. I watched a clip of him reminding myself what Ali actually sounds like, and Smith does a pretty good job of it. He definitely gets the eyes a few times when he gets to be Muhammad Ali in the big moments. Yeah. And we don't know what Ali was like in the quiet moments. So we have to assume that Smith nailed that. Well, I guess so. It's a good performance. Yeah. But Voight, it's not like it's bad. I just wish he'd been even better. It was close enough to the Cosell patter. I was okay with it. You know it. what I'm actually thinking of? The new guy in SNL. James something or other. I forget his name now. Anyway, he's brand new in SNL. He's only been in a couple of episodes. Well, by the time we post this, it'll be several more. But people have done Biden pretty well. Jason Sudeikis did Biden many years ago, and Alex Moffat did him, and of course Jim Carrey. But this new guy on SNL does an outstanding Joe Biden. 
he really captures it. And yes, yeah. doing the voice isn't all, but it really helps if you can get that and feel like, well, at least that part's covered. I believe that I'm listening to Joe Biden right now. I cut Voight a little bit of slack because I don't know if that kind of impersonation is necessarily his true forte. Plus, fuck that guy. In reality. <laughs> yeah, in reality. I couldn't care less about John Voight, the actor, or whether or not he got an Oscar nomination or otherwise for this, because like you said, fuck that guy. But <laughs> He has had a very good career, though. You look at yeah, back mean, at the... Yeah, you can't fault the career. Midnight Cowboy Deliverance days, and he doesn't even sound like he does now. Like he, maybe smoking, like Pacino, maybe that's what it is. Even his Ray Donovan days, he had some good roles in that TV okay. series. I was a big fan of that until I knew more about the guy. But I just like the portrayal of the relationship between the two men. I thought that was one of the few things in this movie where I legitimately came away from it saying, okay, I wasn't terribly aware of that, and good job, Michael Mann, for portraying it, whereas most of the rest of it, I was like, I wish he had done better. The one man he was loyal, one person he was loyal to in this entire portrayal, at least Muhammad, that is, was Howard Cosell, not his wives. <laughs> was the white guy. <laughs> Based on your Johnny Carson comments, I assume you're trying to tell me that you find it very awkward when we take our recording breaks and we just sit here silently for five minutes staring at each other. I'm not awkward. You are. Oh, all right, fair. That's cool. As long as you're okay with it, I'm okay with it too. But the other thing that freaked me out watching this, I don't know if this was a religious thing, but did you notice Don King's fingernails in this movie were like talons? They were like long, thick claws. I didn't notice that, no. Because Michael T. Williamson coming off of Forrest Gump, well, quite a few years before it was Forrest Gump, by the way, one of the writers on this, Eric Roth, who's done a lot of biopic-type movies, also wrote Forrest Gump, got an Oscar for that, or was one of the writers, at least, on it. That's where I know this And Michael T. From. Williamson, his best other-known role would be Bubba. as Bubba. Yeah. And he's still best known for that, I would say. I didn't notice his fingernails, but I think he did a pretty solid job as Don King. The delivery of some of the lines he was asked to do with that Don King-esque language, and specifically some of the alliteration that he had to do, was great. But every time his hands came into frame... They were frightening you? <laughs> Well, because they weren't just long, thick nails. They were almost like shaved to a point, it looked like. Oh, I didn't notice that at all. I should look up pictures later you on. you got to look this up because it freaked me out. And at first I thought it was just my mind playing tricks on me in the first scene that Don King appeared in this movie. But it comes up several other times throughout the course, especially once they're in Africa. It looked like they put weird nail prosthetics on him. I'm like, why? Did Don King notoriously have weirdly long, talon-like fingernails in this era? It took me right out of any scene that this guy was in, i got to tell you. Well, Williamson is very good. We use the word again, solid. I think he was solid in the role, at the very least. But you know who they should have cast to play Don King in this movie? Probably better casting, not that Williamson was bad, as I just said. But Richard Gant, I think is his name, from Rocky V. You're losing everything! The manager that wanted Rocky to fight various champions, and of course, at the end, it's Tommy Gunn. He does a great Don King, not literally because he's not actually Don King, but you know that's what he's supposed to be. Just like Apollo Creed was a play on Muhammad Ali. So he's not the villain, but he's the opponent for Rocky. And then he becomes the inspiration for the Rope-A-Dope in the third movie. Yeah. I think Rocky Three is more based on the Rumble and Jungle and that whole storyline. I think so too, yeah. You brought that up earlier, but I think actually maybe that's what Stallone was doing because he did write and direct by that point in the series. He was writing and directing almost all of them. Two, three, four. Yeah, he wrote and directed all those. So that's probably what he's literally doing, Stallone is, in that case. After Rocky loses to Clubber Lang, or maybe before, isn't that where Mick dies after saying he's going to kill you, Rock, or something like that? Don't fight this guy, he's going to destroy you. Don't knock him out, Rock. Literally kill you. And people legitimately thought Foreman was going to kill Ali in this fight because they seemed like such a mismatch. And Ali probably wasn't, well, I guess he was in ring shape, but he wasn't quite the fighter he'd been before for two reasons. He hadn't been able to box, I think, at all for several years. For three to four years, yeah. Okay, there you go. Right, so I'm correcting myself. It wasn't that he wasn't fighting great champions like Foreman and Fraser. He wasn't fighting anybody. But also, he was just literally older. So Ali, a lot of it had to be bluster. I've also heard that towards the end, when he fought, was it Trevor Burbick or something like that? No, Spinks. Leon Spinks. 
Sphinx. Yeah. He lost his last championship, so he had three championships in total. Obviously, he was stripped of one of them. I think Fraser beat him for one of them. I couldn't find proof of that, and I had to get going when you were coming over. And then the third time he lost to, I think it was Leon Spinks, and they said he was just a shell of his former self. And, of course, he had Parkinson's for a lot of his life. But he also seemed, unlike Michael J. Fox, they worked together, by the way, on that because they have the same illness. But Michael J. Fox's brain seems like it pretty much always was. I think Parkinson's eventually will affect that. But Michael J. Fox is still not that old. Neither was Ali when we think of him in his older days. But when you hear Ali speak from, I don't know, say, mid-80s to the 90s, and he died in, what was it, 2016. Will Smith was a pallbearer at his funeral, by the way, so I guess they got close during this production. But for all those years, Muhammad Ali, when you hear him speak, wasn't at all the same guy. So the Parkinson's couldn't have just been tremors in your hands and such, and arms. Not an expert on Parkinson's, but I think it's on those things that can affect different people in different ways. And in okay. Ali's case, you're right, he wasn't at all the same guy. That was part of the tragedy, specifically with Parkinson's affecting Muhammad Ali, is because he was such a charismatic and well-spoken man in his younger years, the fact that it robbed him of that for basically half his life, or mm. maybe not quite that much, but you know, robbed him of A huge of, chunk of it, though, anyway. huge chunk of it. I don't know if it necessarily affected him neurologically. It but seemed to, though. It definitely affected his ability to speak. So whether or not okay. he was thinking something and just wasn't able to convey it, I don't know. But I agree with you. It's tragic. And I like Michael J. Fox a lot. So I'm pretty happy that he's been able to live the life he's been able to live for as long as he's been able to with this disease. It's been about 30 years for Michael. Yeah. But Ali is revered now. Typical thing, just like MLK by the right is revered so much now in a way he was not back in the 60s. People that revere him now, big political people, would have hated their guts, both of them, all of these guys, all of these black guys, if they were around in their prime, meaning the politicians, in the 60s. Ali got to light the torch at the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. I remember watching that, yeah. That's not nothing to get to do that, represent your whole country as the one who actually lights the torch. So anyway, that's a little bit frustrating, too, that that's the way people are. That, yeah, you know what? My favorite guy, maybe not favorite, but I love Muhammad Ali. Would you, back in the 60s, when he was outspoken and saying that great famous line... No Viet Cong never called me the N-word. In other words, that's why I don't want to go fight, and I'm going to refuse to be drafted. That's the other thing I thought was the most confusing thing in the whole film is, did he ever actually go to jail? Oh, no, he didn't. They did not show that in the movie. Was it house arrest then for all those years? Because then eventually the Supreme Court overturned it. He wasn't under house arrest. He wasn't in custody. He got arrested and released on bond. He wasn't able to travel. That's part of the reason why he couldn't have fights arranged and why he got the title stripped is he had no ability to travel. He wasn't ever taken to jail, even though he was sentenced to that five-year jail term. It was just under appeal the whole time, so he was released during that. Oh, he could afford to do that, but Joe Average refusing the draft can't afford to do that. That's absolutely the case, yeah. But that is such an interesting element of Ali's life, his interaction with the government during the Vietnam War and his conscientious objection. But we only got, like, the barest snippets outlining what was happening to him. And even when the Supreme Court ruled in his favor... It was almost like it didn't matter because we get the phone call from Cosell telling Ali that he was a free man, essentially, at that point. And sure, maybe that's how he found out the news. That's great. but So anticlimactic, though. Yeah, exactly. Give me a some visual. drama, yeah. some visual representation. Because all we get is that, okay, well, thanks, Howard. On the phone, he hangs it up, goes down, and eats with his family, and then on we go. I'm like, really? That was four years of your life, and you just won this battle against the government that's what you're going to give yeah. me? Uh, so that happened, as Alec Baldwin says, in State and Maine. By the way, what people would have just heard a minute ago was right. Tilly shaking her head. She's been on Chris's lap the entire time. We're in a new room, by the way. I've said this twice on the other podcast I do, Top Runner Project with Bev. I'm hoping to fix this after this episode sometime later this week for Bev and I's third episode in this new house. Our echoey, or whatever you want to call it, hollow-sounding ceiling. So we've got two dogs in this small room with us. 
Sam's sleeping, Tilly's not. And if people who have listened to us wonder what's going on with the sound, that's what it is. Hopefully it'll only be one episode for you and I before I get something yeah. up on that ceiling. That's what happens when you get a place with vaulted ceilings, right? They're not even that high. Here at Chateau Ellis, <laughs> what you're not telling people are the extensive grounds on which this palatial the estate... estate. This pro- <laughs> the vineyards out back, the private golf course... <laughs> So as far as the cast goes, let's burn through some of these names here. We've talked about Will Smith a lot, of course. We covered him not that long ago in The Legend of Bagger Vance on this channel, and then Bev and I did Independence Day a few months ago as well, leading to July 4th, of course. So it's been a big year of talking about Will Smith for me. You and I eventually will probably do Concussion. I think that's a pretty decent sort of football movie that's about, of course, concussions and football. Well, that's been covered up. And Tilly's looking at herself in the mirror. Who was that good-looking dog in there? That's you, Tilly. And she's spreading her legs. It's too bad this isn't a visual podcast because I've been turning the camera and let everyone see her and be charmed. They wouldn't care what we're saying anymore. Chris can take a picture. So as far as the rest of the cast, John Voight was also in The Champ, which is a boxing movie in the 80s, I believe it was, with Ricky Schroeder. Varsity Blues, a couple years before this. And of course, we talked about Glory Road already. So a lot of sports movies for Mr. Voight. Jamie Foxx probably wasted a little bit, but he was great in Any Given Sunday a couple years before this as a football player. And he's the one that Ali plays off of in those press conferences and weigh-ins where it's rumble, young man, rumble. Oh, that's Bundini that he's doing that with. It's not yeah. anybody else. Jeffrey Wright is photographer. is not really part of that. He's always on the scenes, part of the entourage a lot. Wright wasn't a big name at that point. So you can't call him wasted. But there's a guy who's become a huge player now who is in a small role in this film. Jamie Foxx felt a little bit wasted in this role because in the moments when he's allowed to have a little bit of fun and let the personality shine through, it was great. You get that one moment where he's got to get clean, and that felt weird. Oh, what do you mean? Bundini's now a junkie. Okay, well, let's go clean him up. And then all of a sudden, he's clean. And he's good again. Give him room to shine. Because one of the best moments in this movie to me, for some reason, when he's speaking to the camera, and I don't know if he's meant to be speaking to reporters, Bundini, that is. This man, meaning Ali, is presumptively, anyway, devout Muslim man. He says, this man lets me be with him, even though I eat pig, and I love white women. I can give up the pig, but the white women... Whether or not that's like an appropriate thing to say to the press, Jamie Foxx sells the moment. He's a guy with so much charisma, and he's just not really allowed to show it in this movie. One of the understated roles that I enjoyed a lot was the other corner man for Ali, Angelo. Bronze Silver, Angelo Dundee is who he was playing. He did just an understated job, but I thought a pretty solid job throughout. Not much dialogue for him, but he's in most of the scenes, certainly the boxing scenes. He does what he needs to do well enough. And again, I think maybe one of the reasons I like that portrayal, whereas Bundini, I'm like, give me more. It's just because I don't know Ron Silver, and I know Mm -hmm. Jamie Foxx, and I know what Jamie Foxx can do, and similarly, I know what Will Smith can do. I don't know Ron Silver. So I can accept a more sedate background role. They didn't give us a lot of this, but I think they gave us enough. The relationship between Angelo and Ali, it wasn't based on race. We hear about how much the Don King-Ali relationship is in some ways, based on race, right? Because Ali is saying, well, he's the first black fight promoter that's been able to get a fight in Afri- a title fight in Africa. Yeah, he was a crook. I don't know if they knew then he was a crook. Well, right? they did. And he was a killer. The wife accused him effectively of okay, being a crook, right? Embezzling. That's probably true. But in terms of what this movie's portraying, it is very much, in part anyway, the fact that Don King is a black man as a fight promoter in the heavyweight world. But even then, in that pre-fight press conference, or one of them, prior to the Rumble in the Jungle... Ali straight up defends Angelo. Don King snipes at him in the press conference and Ali turns around in front of everybody and says, don't ever talk to Angie that way. You're not in charge. They know that. He's been here forever. Who the hell are you? 
that is an instance where this movie gave us enough to justify this moment and it really shows the relationship that these two men have had together for presumably Ali's entire professional career. Shows how fair Ali can be and exactly, yeah. Deciding with the white man over the black man. Regardless of race, whether it was white or well, right or wrong. Yeah. yeah. For as much as I've ripped on this movie, it did have some sporadically sprinkled in mm-hmm. moments throughout that were pretty well done. Mario Von Peebles does play Malcolm for what is that, maybe twenty five, thirty minutes, or probably a little bit more, but not even half the movie. He hasn't been in any of the sports films, so we probably won't talk about him again. But a couple years after this, he played his own father in Badass, which is based on Sweet Sweetback's Badass song. So Melvin Van Peebles made that huge independent hit, mostly a black film. A lot of white people in it too, I guess, but mostly a black film. And then he made The Making Of, which I love. I've seen Badass three, four, or five times. I'll watch it again tomorrow. And it's one of the best things that Mario's ever been involved in. Not Jaws the Revenge. But he's pretty good casting in this. It's funny too, because Denzel Washington is only nine years earlier playing Malcolm X and they weren't going to get him I guess you can't put him in here it'd be fun to see him in this relatively small role though playing the same character again but he would have just overwhelmed Smith and they probably couldn't afford him there's all kinds of reasons not to do it in this particular movie I had no specific feelings about Van Peebles' performance mostly because Malcolm X didn't get a lot to do with the screen time he had Mm -hmm. he mostly just popped in and out and was like hi I'm Malcolm X and I'm somehow a friend of Ali's and then he'd be gone again. Well, the movie makes it seem like it's one of the most important relationships, if not the most important relationship that Ali ever had. I think it does put that across, but other movies since, including that documentary I mentioned, do it even better. Giancarlo Esposito plays his father, which is interesting casting because he's one of the people that kills Malcolm in Malcolm X, the Spike Lee, Denzel Washington movie. Is it really? Yeah, but he's playing his own dad. No, sorry, he's not playing his dad. He's playing Ali's dad in this, but he's Cassius Sr. Muhammad Ali was a junior and he's fine. Again, not a ton to do with this. Well, I saw LeVar Burton's name in the opening credits. Another LeVar Burton's in this? He plays MLK. And I thought, when apart from him getting shot, they show that still frame. I think it was just that picture we've all seen of him laying on the hotel balcony after he got shot. Whatever it was, though, I don't remember him having dialogue. Maybe he had scenes that were cut. That could be what it was. I think that has to be. I didn't know he was in this movie until he said that just now. And as a Star Trek aficionado, I'm pretty sure I would have picked up on LeVar Burton. <laughs> so it's not the best boxing we've ever seen or will ever see. But Will Smith and his various opponents are pretty convincing in the ring, I thought. I'd say it's at least, I'll use this word again, a solid boxing film. I guess you don't fully agree, though. You thought there's too much of the shaky cam kind of effect. Neither one of us, I guess, are boxing fans enough to critique the portrayal of the sport in a way that we might critique other sports. Well, we can in the sense, does it work for you or not work for you? And it sounds like it didn't work for you. It worked-ish. It was a little bit too much of that. I wish they'd maybe just had a little bit less of that cinematography style or shorten the boxing scene. Did they show that very famous shot of him standing over, must have been Liston. He did. They did did show that shot. And when they fight each other in the first fight, by the way, they're both wearing black trunks or white trunks with a black stripe. I thought you always had to have opposite colors or different colors so it can be distinguished, especially on black and white televisions. It's a good point. And then the same color guy. If it's a white guy versus a black guy, it's easier to pick that out. But two black guys, or what if it was two white guys with the basically same trunks? It's weird. I would have thought that'd be Right. Are you saying that they all look the same to you? All those white guys On a black and white TV, same color person, you would. (laughs) And then their trunks would be the thing that could distinguish them, but they don't. We know that in a Colbert-esque way, you don't see race. So everybody is just like a monocolor blur to you. With my glasses and hair, and I'm not that much younger than him. If he and I were both in the ring together, we'd probably blend relatively well. He's better looking than me, but... I've always said... Ryan Ellis, Will Smith. They're practically the same no, guy. Stephen Colbert. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were comparing yourself to Will Smith, but okay. No, not quite. As for the scoring factor, I said earlier that the actresses that they cast as his three main squeezes, whew, outstanding. Yeah. So, movie that's got some sex appeal, without a doubt. And Will Smith himself is looking great. Pretty handsome. He's got the Muhammad Ali haircut, which isn't the most flattering thing in the world. 
Scoring factor is fine. There are some reasonably fun little scenes, especially early on in the movie when he's in jazz clubs and stuff, and you get some of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's some little oh, yeah. bits like that. Yeah, okay, that might up the scoring factor. And it's actually a lot of pretty good music in this movie. I think, by the way, Sam Cooke is supposed to be that guy, maybe, because when I was scrolling through the credits earlier, I see that he's portrayed by somebody in this movie. Scores out of 10 are all subjective, but what would you, in your personal ranking, what do you think? I'm going to give it a higher score than you will, I know. I'm going to give it a six and a half because I think the movie doesn't execute what it needs to very well. It does feel too long, but also rushed. Movie of contradictions. But I got to credit most of the actors, if not all the actors, for being quite good. I did care, but on the other hand, for a man of such passion and ferocity... This feels a little bloodless. I was going to give it a six, largely on the fact that I still think as much as he was miscast because of the tone that this movie was going mm-hmm. for, Will Smith did a good job in the role, all things considered. I liked some of the other performances, even if I didn't love the way the characters were portrayed, like Jamie Foxx and John Voight. I thought they did fine. I think Muhammad Ali himself saw the movie before it being released and sort of gave it his blessing. As much as I think Michael Mann could have maybe narrowed his focus on elements of Ali's life for the purposes of a theatrical movie and given those elements of it more introspection, maybe. It's not an awful movie. And no, by no means. And maybe Ali was a little lionized, and that could be why he liked it too, because he doesn't come across as a bad guy. Not that he was a bad guy, but all the cheating on his wives. For some people, that's a bridge too far, and in this movie, he's almost sainted. One of the reasons why Bundini maybe has a breakdown effectively and becomes a drug addict is because he doesn't have his meal ticket, but not just his meal ticket, his friend, because he can't box, meaning Muhammad can't box. So without Muhammad Ali, and then again, if you're ever going to put somebody on that kind of pedestal in reality or in a film, this is the guy for it. You mentioned that element of the relationship between Ali and Bundini, and why did Bundini just go off the deep end and end up in this drug-riddled haze? I hadn't thought about it. He lost his rudder. Yeah, but is the movie implying that these people in Ali's corner are literally just... There to facilitate his professional career. Muhammad Ali in this movie is George Bailey and It's Wonderful Life. Without him, everything goes to shit. (laughs) Listen, in some respects, that might be true, because he is the meal ticket for these guys. He is their career. But you would think, especially for these men that have been with him for an extended period of time during his professional career, before him not being able to box in the late 60s, does the fact that he's not actively fighting mean that he suddenly just cuts all ties with them? Because the implication in this movie is he hasn't seen hide nor hair of Bundini for yeah. maybe years. Well, also they talk at one point about how Muhammad is broke. Yes. So maybe he can't afford to get around to see them. And they can't afford to get to see him if they live in different places. I guess that's true. So, I don't know if he's busy, though. If he has nothing else to do, he can't do his job. <laughs> I have a very busy social calendar. I can't see Bundini. <laughs> or possible. probably Angelo and whoever else. Okay, well, we wish the movie was better, but I'm not surprised because I remember not loving this the first time, and I didn't think I was going to love it this time. I thought I'd either like it a lot less or about the same, and I think I'm about the same as I was when I saw it in the theater 20 years ago in the very competitive time frame of Christmas time, 2001. Well, in two weeks, we go from a DC villain, Will Smith, who played Deadshot? Yeah, that's it. Deadshot. To a DC hero, Batfleck, as we return to the basketball court, or at least to the coach's chair of the basketball court, and review Ben Affleck boozing his way through the way back. Okay, I am on Twitter at MovieFiend51. Chris is on Twitter at ScoringAtMovies. And you can email us, ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. Every one of our episodes is available for download. Give us a rating. That helps us out. Helps promote the show. We've done 89 of them now. And the way back will be number 90. So take your easy, Muhammad. You did enough big things for three lifetimes. Not just one. <laughs>